You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Debbie Hayton is a science teacher at a high school in central England. Nine years ago, she transitioned male to female and hoped to keep her job and stay out of the press. However, following calls to introduce self-identification of legal gender in the UK, she became a regular commentator on the trans debate. Debbie opposes self-identification and supports women who defend their sex-based rights. As a scientist, her views are rooted in reality. In 2019, she wore a t-shirt that declares, trans women are men, get over it, causing outrage. Debbie is married with three children. In our conversation, we discuss Debbie's appearance in Stella's film, Trans Kids, and the reaction from audiences. Debbie also tells us about how autogynephilia and sexuality played a role in her desire to transition, which she describes as a compulsion. She argues that chasing gender euphoria is an important and overlooked driver behind many people's transition, and she tells us about three factors that led her to become completely disillusioned with the theory of gender identity. Here's our conversation with Debbie. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you today? I am great. Uh, The clocks have turned back and it's turned wintry and autumnal in Ireland, (laughs) finally. Um, We have a a special guest on today, um, Dr. Debbie Hayton. Is that right, Debbie? That's right, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And anybody who knows me in this world will know that I met Debbie first in the film I did for Channel 4 in 2018, which was called Trans Kids. And I am very happy that we are getting to meet Debbie in this context, because it's a few years later and I feel that There's been a huge amount of said since me and you first met, Debbie, especially about that film and uh, how you were shot and how the how so many people have commented on it. And I've often thought many people had it wrong. Many people slightly misinterpreted how it emerged. I think it was a good uh, insight into your life. And I think we provided a lot of time for your wife, Stephanie, to speak. And she was brilliant and she was very insightful. And I remember you emailed me personally afterwards and you thanked me for giving space to Stephanie because often you said to me, the wives don't get much voice and you you, you appreciated it, that we had very much centred Stephanie. And I, I was very intent on doing that. So I remember when we did the film uh, Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk for Channel 4 and we met you, Debbie. It was It was really important for you and for your family that Stephanie got some some space to talk, your wife, Stephanie, and uh, that we we made sure to centre it as a family experience as opposed to just your experience. And there was a huge amount of um, outcry, really, after the film was released. And an awful lot of people, I believe, misinterpreted what had actually happened. I do think uh, transitioning in a family, especially with children, is very, very, very difficult experience for the family. And I think it needs to be acknowledged and raised and awareness needs to be for it. But for our film, I really thought that this was being acknowledged and there was honesty. And I feel people kind of um, almost turned on you as if you were the villain of the tale rather than you were saying, I'm not sure if this was a great idea for my family and here's their side Um, let them speak. None of us are perfect. And perhaps I didn't make the most considerate decisions for them, but I did what I could at the time. Would that be in and around where you were at, Debbie? Yeah, because it's it's around three years ago we, we, the film was shown, but we recorded it even earlier, didn't we? And my thinking has moved on since then. But even then, I was conscious of the fact that uh, this was a very selfish thing which I'd done. And we'd then spent the next five years, six years at that point, working through it. Uh, I... 
I thought that the, uh, the, the, the piece of film, it's about four minutes long, was excellent. I remember when the director sent it to, to us to be, uh, to be checked. Uh, I think he was concerned that we might be, uh, we, we might say you can't show this, but we were really pleased with what he managed to do and put together and to try and get across the impact on the family because you, you don't, you don't tend to see that and you, you don't see enough of that. And, where we were always, where we'd been coming from was almost on one side, there were these pictures where it was all, you know, sweetness and light, you know, rainbows and glitter and, and transitioning was the best thing to, to, to land Before on the family. the family, you know, and that we've seen that. And then there's also been, you know, I, I appreciate that some people have had really dreadful experiences of this and it's all been negative, but we, we just, we were trying to put across something where this was dreadful, but we tried to work it through together. And I don't see a lot of that. One thing I do want to raise is that when a film is shot, that it's shot out of sequence. So they might do an image of somebody with a very sad face and there might be a voice speaking. And that's not necessarily when that person is making that very sad face. So an awful lot of mileage was made out of the fact when you said something in Stephanie's face. And I'm like, well, if anybody knew anything about filmmaking, they'd realise that was out of sequence. At one point, somebody's talking. At another point, somebody's filming. And it's not necessarily, it's put together. It's, it, you know, and it's not that it's deceptive because the message is, is certainly, uh, I, well, it can definitely be deceptive sometimes. I don't think our film was. But it's certainly created and curated. And I think people making a huge amount of points on somebody's face when somebody said something isn't quite understanding what's going on when a film is being made. I think there was one point where you asked a specific question and then the camera zoomed in on Stephanie in in some, uh, you know, in, in, as if to say, how on earth did the camera person know exactly to zoom in that place? No, that, that, that shot was filmed probably an hour, you know, an hour ago or an hour afterwards. Uh, mm, yeah. And that, that's 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 what happens. But as you say, it's trying to get across a message rather than saying this is as was as was shot at the time, and it wasn't. And what it was, the message was, is how is it for a family when there's a late transition? And could you could you kind of maybe give us the background, the kind of the quick kind of um, summary of how you got to a place that you were in and around forty four years old with a wife and three children, and you thought you'd transition. Could you well, it, give yeah, us a sh- whistle top? Sh- sure, tour. right. Yeah. Uh, the big, the the big question which you always want to know is why? Why did this chronic condition, this dissatisfaction with my sex, dissatisfaction with my body, uh, why did it suddenly become acute uh, when I was forty four? You know, what what on earth happened that this this thing in the background that I was managing and, and managed pretty well for years suddenly became an issue, and it was the fact that other people were doing it. And uh, I've said elsewhere that the availability of the treatment demands the need for it, demands the, uh, you know, sorry, the availability of the treatment fuels the demand for it. So that if the treatment wasn't available, I wouldn't have, uh, so I wouldn't it's, have, sorry, it's like It's like build it and they'll come. Yeah, it's true. It is. It is. Without it, well, what would you do? You just get on with life. It's, it's, it's the promise that here you can change sex. You can be the other sex. And I guess it's like, I've tried to work through this, if, you know, if they said, here's a treatment that you can extend, you know, eternal, here's this treatment for eternal youth, uh, people would want it. And then if it was denied, people would be clamouring for it. Whereas if the treatment's not available, you don't even think about it. So yeah. the very fact that the treatment was available, I knew it was available, and I started talking to other people on the internet about it. The internet is, you know, it, it's a blessing and a curse. So I was talking to other people on the internet about it, and you realise, hey, you can do this too. And the moment I realised I could do it, I needed to do it. And at that point my mental health collapsed suddenly there was this need to do something which not be, which had not been uh, not been strongly there before so that took over my life uh, i uh, i became self absorbed self interested focused purely on self and I, I can think back to that time uh, in some ways i was aware i was aware to some degree of what i was doing but really it's you know you can only be so so aware of what's of what's happening at that time but it became a thing I had to do, and suddenly everything revolved around this transition. And Stephanie was there trying to uh, 
trying to slow things down, I guess, so that uh, it was at least manageable. And we've said since that, uh, you know, it wasn't that I was going twice as fast and she was going half as fast. It was that I wanted to go 10 times faster and she wanted to go at least 10 times slower. And whenever a decision was made, I then rushed on to the next one and I rushed on to the next one. And this date for transition, this what you know, this this magical thing called transition just kept coming further, you know, closer and closer and closer and kept kept coming forwards. May I may I ask a question in general? Would you say that that tendency to latch onto a solution and pursue it relentlessly, do you think that's been part of your personality? For example, were there other situations where, you know, you see something that you really want, a dishwasher, a car, a wife, and you just get really fixated on having that thing or that person or or that object? Is that a personality thing? Or do you think this was specific to the desire to transition? I think the desire for transition is fueled by the availability and the need for it and the fact you can make it work. But yes, I am, uh, I am the sort of person who, uh, who, who makes a strategy and a campaign out of things. And, uh, even my transition, I, uh, I'd worked out exactly what was going to happen and when I had my, uh, I didn't actually have a Gantt chart with all the dates and times mm-hmm. on it, but, uh, I had, you know, I, 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 I'd sorted out the itinerary. Uh, I, I am the person who will sort out itineraries in detail. I like that sort of thing. So that there is personality there, but uh, there's it's not just personality. Yeah, yeah. Could I ask, um, you have spoke before about how when you had a counsellor around about that time, the counsellor put a chair in front of one door and said, that's that's transitioning. Can we explore all the other options first? And I thought that was a very impressive technique and I've I've mentioned it since. And now I I often think I get the sense from you that you think, I wonder, could I have been stopped? I wonder where there are other options. I wonder, should I have transitioned? I think those type of things come come up. Was there any therapy or experience that could have made you pull back? I don't know. Uh, I look back. I'm so glad that the counsellor used that technique and you know, Sasha, she put a, she had an open doorway and put a chair in that said, transitions through there, uh, we'll explore everything else, we'll explore all the other options first. So we had, it felt like, it felt like months we were having counselling sessions with a chair in the door. I think it was two weeks. How long had you known her before she did that? Because that's a technique that I imagine could really alienate the wrong kind of client uh, and yeah, obviously yeah. you were willing so oh, it I was, worked out I, I i i was happy to go along with this so we we i had about 20 sessions altogether so it's probably quite early on in this mm-hmm. and uh but the chair was there and i remember i actually remember getting out of my chair and walking over and moving the chair and then sitting back down again and then we started talking about cancer we started talking about transition and i spoke to her later on and uh, about this, about that chair. Remember when we had that chair there? And she, uh, and how I, and she said she wasn't going to move that chair. I had to move that chair. You know, that chair was going to stay there as far as she was concerned. And that helps me now because looking back, I can remember. You, you, you can feel. You can remember how you were feeling, not what you were thinking, but you're feeling when I got up and moved that chair. And that's how strong. That's how strong it was. And I need that now because. You know, you move on in your emotions. And I look back and thinking, did I really need to do that? You know, and if I'd just been, you know, if I'd gone into somebody who just sat down and said, oh, this is brilliant, Debbie, you can transition. And it's very easy. All you've got to do is this, this, this. I can write the paperwork out for you. I can make a recommendation for ther- for hormone therapy. Very easy. I'd be here thinking now, thinking, well, what was all that about? And did I really need to put everybody through this? And that's what worries me about affirmation i think it has to be a challenge you know you have to uh you have to show to yourself and your future self that this is something you need to do so yeah i grabbed that chair and then we talked about transition and previous when you were a kid did you want to be a woman did, what what age were you and did you suppress it or was it just like you say you say it's almost it was lit by the internet what was pre-internet days Oh, it was there from my earliest memories, two, three, four years old, that there was an issue here. And it came from clothing, you know, clothing which, because 
three-year-old girls and three-year-old boys wear different stuff, and I wanted to wear the clothes that three-year-old girls were wearing. And I don't, I couldn't understand it. I didn't know why. And uh, this was, uh, you know, this 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 was very important to me at the time. So why that was actually happening, I had no clue at the time. But it was something that you could live with. You were growing up, live, you were learning about other things, uh, and uh, it was able to put to one side and not think about too much. But it it never went away. It wasn't something which uh, you could. Uh, you could put to one side and it was, it was parceled up. You know, we talked about shame and shame, shame is a powerful emotion that you can use to, uh, to, to, uh, control such things. And I did, you know, I was deeply ashamed. This, this, this wish to wear girls clothes was, uh, was something that, you know, five, six, seven year old boys are deeply ashamed about. You didn't talk to anybody for goodness sake, but, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's what, it's what, it's, it's how I coped. Did it, did your family know or did anybody know that you were wanting to wear girls' clothes no. at that age? No. No, I was very, very careful. You wouldn't mm-hmm. tell anybody. You know, the the uh, world would fall apart if anybody, uh, if anybody ever found that out. When I got to be a teenager, I did buy things when I was a teenager and I used to go to another town in case I bumped into anybody in town. So uh, the nearby town, I, I, yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to the women's department there, but did. You know, I'd travel 20 miles and, 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 and shop there. I'd buy things and then secrete it away in the back of the cupboard. And uh, it was... It's, it sounds so isolating. I mean, it sounds like a lonely place to have this secret that is obviously such a compulsion. It's a pa- powerful feeling. And it's also completely hidden from everybody. I mean, I I think people on the outside who don't have this experience can easily forget how challenging and lonely that probably feels to be so ashamed of something that you don't know what else to do about. Yeah. And I'd buy, I'd buy clothes and get a collection. And then every, you know, perhaps every period, every period of time, I'd think enough of this. And uh, I'd take them to the tip, dump them, and uh, and move on and say never again and and it always came back and she so go through those cycles, uh, but shame, guilt, and fear are the ways of uh, controlling it. We need a better way, but what is the better way? Yeah, million dollar question, which we will answer at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do you did you term yourself a transvestite at that point? Well, no, because I didn't really. Uh, I'd collect these clothes, and never wear them. But it was it was a security blanket, a plus you know security blanket there. So I'd never I'd never been out the house dressed in you know uh, dressed as in female clothes ever. But when fact, you dis- when you discovered the concept of a transvestite, did you think, oh, that's where I? Well, no, I I I had no, I I didn't really. It was. It, it was it was the way it was over sexualized. That that really wasn't 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 where I wanted to be. I, it was, you know, looking at images of, you know, when you, when you read about transvestites in the, uh, you know, in the, in the Sunday tabloids, you know, the stories that we used to get in the eighties, you remember that Stella, uh, you'd look at that and think, oh, that's, that's not me. I was, I just had no interest in, in that, in, in that, in that line. So, you know, I wouldn't have classed myself as transvestite because I didn't. I didn't go outside wearing women's clothes. In fact, the first time I ever did, I'd, be, I'd been to the gender clinic first and told the gender clinic I was going to transition. He was my timeline, and they said, "Have you been out the house yet?" I said, "Oh no, that comes next week." Uh, so you know that that was uh, you know that that that's what that's that's where I was. And I wonder, um, you, you described autogynophilia as a sexuality. Am I right? Yeah. Um, could you could you explain your your understanding of autogynophilia and how you see it as a sexuality? Well, sexual orientation can be towards females or males. So I'm, I'm gynophilic. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm attracted to females. I've, I've not got a lot of interest in, in men really. So I'm gynophilic, but it's, it's only now I've properly really understood what, what's happening there in that men can be attracted to any part of the female body. 
And I, you know, if you men, men don't talk about this this much, but uh, sometimes a few beers and you can uh, you, you can eke it out of them. But men will be uh, men will be attracted to various parts of female bodies, and they'll be attracted to different women. Uh, men can be attracted to anything. And what I understand about autogynophilia is it's an attraction to our own bodies. You know, our own body becomes the uh, the focus of our sexual interest, and in some cases it can be total. Uh, but in many cases, it competes. You know, in some ways that men can compete with, you know, their sexual interests can can compete with different women. You know, middle-aged men go off and have an affair because uh, their fo- sexual focus uh, goes on another woman. And then they can, co- you know, so it can flip. Now, uh, in this case, the sexual focus is our own bodies. And what's, interest- what's interesting about the middle-aged men and the affairs is if you're looking for... Uh, if you're looking for an, a parallel or an analogy to this middle-aged transition, it, it's having an affair. But you're having an affair with, with yourself, basically. You know, you are the other woman. With yourself as a woman. Yes. Yeah, you were forgetting to put in that bit. Yeah, you were yeah, saying. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so that's, what, that's what goes through the mind. So this, 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 is, this is where the, sex, where the sexual interest is. Uh, now, you say, well... How come then, Debbie, this, this started when you were three, four, five years old? Because the, uh, a lot of people think that sexuality starts at puberty. Well, puberty magnifies it. It, gets, it becomes much bigger. But if you look at, if you look at you know, preschool children interacting, they play with each other in different ways. I've heard it said that you know, the preschool play is you know, it's practicing for adult life in the way that boys will play together in a certain way, girls play together in a certain way. So this is going on then. And how I remember back to when I was three, four, five is, you know, I have a, it's, it's the, it's, it's the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the just, just the uh, dissonance in your mind. On one hand, I'm a boy. So I used to run around and play with the trucks and climb the trees as other boys did. But on the other hand, I, you know, my interest was different. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, I also wanted to be a girl. And it, that didn't make any sense at the time. And even when I transitioned, I didn't understand it. You know, I thought I was, I thought I was transitioning because I was a woman. Uh, I was some sort of woman because I, I had a gender identity, which was forcing me into this. I, you know, I, I, lapped up, I lapped up the ideology totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sorry. So in terms of timeline, because of course now you're talking about different ways you've found to explain your gender issues, your sexuality, you're talking about AGP. You also mentioned that when you discovered transition, you just got really obsessed with it. So without going into too much detail, can you just set us up with a timeline? Like you had these feelings from three or four, very, very young. What did you encounter first? Was that the internet explaining that some people are transitioning? And then when did you learn about AGP as a concept? Right. I learned, you know, I, I knew that people transitioned from when I was, from, from when I was, when I was at primary school, you know, because it appears, it appeared in the newspapers and it appeared in the, uh, in, in women's magazines often, even in the 1970s. And I looked at it and thought this was something unachievable. People like me didn't do this. So that's what kept it in its place. And you know, you read about it. I knew that people transitioned. I knew that, uh, you know, I knew that April Ashley had transitioned. I knew that, uh, you, you know, that all these other people had transitioned. But it, it wasn't something that I could do. The problem came with the internet. And it's when you start talking to other people. Uh, so you start talking to other people who have transitioned. And you realise that you can do it. It's not, it's not a different class of people. It's people just like you. And then you meet people who have transitioned and you think... This is what I've always wanted to do, and you've done it. And the feelings of, you know, envy over you've done this, and I want to do this, then just takes over, you know. And that okay. was that that was that was the issue. So it was it was it was the internet. And then you learned at some point about Blanchard Bailey, all of that stuff. How deep into your transition were you when you discovered these concepts? Right, I transitioned in twenty twelve. Okay. I had no idea. I, 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 and I went through very quickly. I managed to, uh, you know, I transitioned. I got hormone therapy. I ended up on a queue for gender surgery because just because of waitlist in this country. So I, I, I had to queue for two. So I went on the, I went on the waitlist for gender surgery in 2014. I had to wait two years to 2016 for that. Uh, I had gender surgery in February 2016. 
And then uh, it was the following summer that I re- it was the summer of 2016 that I realised that uh, I that there was something more to this than what I'd been led to believe. So you hadn't heard of the concept of autogynephilia right up no. 2012, right through no. to 2016. Nobody even no. said this word. Uh, it, it it was talked about in trans circles very darkly as something which was uh, was. Yeah, it, it 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 was distasteful. There was trans that we were transsexuals and they were autogynophiles. Yeah, you know, that was the wow. Uh, and what did you think when you thought when you heard it? Did you get a feeling of recognition? Well, the, pro- the problem is is that it is it is demonised and it and it's uh, it, it it then gets talked as a fetish and it gets talked as being something which is dirty and nasty and and. Uh, you know, this, this is, this is, this is, this is, and it can lead to those things. And, and we can see, you know, you, you only have to go on the internet and see what, see what, you know, autogynephilic males get up to. But it's not because they're autogynephilic, it's because they're male in most cases. And uh, so at the time when I first came across it, it was the summer of 2016 into 2017. I thought it wasn't me because I didn't, you know, I didn't really have much interest in uh, in getting up in that over-sexualized club. You, you, you know, you've seen me. I just, I've just, it's just not me. I, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. So it was, it was, I, I was confused because like lots of people are confused. I was looking at the outworkings of autogynephilia rather than looking at autogynephilia itself, which is, you know, a sexual attraction to self. And if you don't, if you don't understand what's going on, you you uh you've got you haven't got the words to actually describe that, and it can as I say it can lead to all sorts of outworkings, and and it's not because, as I say it's not because the you know the autogynephilic people you see on the internet with the with the very very sexualized view of 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 womanhood uh, yeah, of women, uh, and they said that's what autogynephiles are like. I'd actually say no, that's what men are like, and what you're seeing there. Is what you're seeing there? You're getting you're getting a window into male sexuality that uh, usually you don't see it because it stays. You know, men might have these uh, images of how they'd like their women to dress or present themselves, but uh, the moment they start, so there's there's a woman there who can put some sense and say, well, "I'm not doing that." And and but when when the focus is yourself, then it's like short circuiting a battery. Then. You know, usually in in the sexual dynamic of this of the male sexuality, you know, the of male sexuality, the dynamic there, the male is the uh, is the is the I'm a physicist is the cell in the circuit or the battery in the circuit, and the woman is the load in the circuit, which offers some resistance. Whereas in autogynephilia, what you do is you just short circuit the uh, the battery, and then you end up with uh, all sorts of uh, interesting and uh, effects, which uh, can become you know. Quite astonishing at times. So, so the only barrier to allowing your sexual imagination to run wild is a barrier you're willing to set for yourself, which really blows the lid off for some individuals. And, and when you're talking about some of these people that you see on the internet, I, I don't know if this is true, because of course I, I can't be certain, but it also seems like there are some seriously porn-fueled versions of this, which... I'm sure some of it is the interplay of just whatever typically male sexuality looks like. And then also binging oneself on certain kinds of materials perhaps really exacerbates that or keeps kind of upping the novelty, right? Because to some degree, male sexuality thrives on novelty. So um, do do you feel like some of these individuals online are expressing that as well beyond just like oh this is just typical male sexuality run amok when it's paired with autogynephilia do you think that there's some other influences playing a part too i'm not sure that autogynephilia is 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 special i think i think there is there's nothing to control it you know male male, the male sexual drive is so powerful it's one of the you know it's one of the most powerful forces that you know my half of the of the uh of the species knows, and it has to be controlled. You know, society con- has to control this. And, you know, and you're right, you know, there's always the, the need for novelty, f- to push things further, and uh, to, 
and and to raise things to a new new height. And porn is just so available. And and the problem for the individual who's using it then then gets caught as far as I see in this feedback loop of always of always needing more. Uh, I talk about do I, did I really need to transition? And what's actually freed me, you know, freed me from that was the fact that, yes, you know, within within six months, my hormone regime had changed and I didn't I didn't have that again. If I hadn't transitioned and I hadn't had the, uh, you know, I hadn't had my hormones changed and I'd still been living on the testosterone I was living on, heaven knows where I would have been. And this is this 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 is when I look at others who perhaps haven't been as fortunate to have the medical input as me, then you think, yeah, I can see where this happens, and it's that ever you know that ever increasing need and compulsion for more. Mm. So there's something about the, and I've heard this before, of course, from males who transition to female that for some of them changing the chemical levels, hormonal levels in the body actually quells the, the impulse that was initially bringing them to transition. So it almost seems like a way to escape this very overwhelming, powerful force of your sexuality. And also I can imagine there might be a feeling of like dissatisfaction or disappointment in that because the driving force is now diminished. I wonder if you can speak to your experience of that. Yeah, uh, you know, hormone therapy did diminish my uh, sexual drive, but it didn't. It didn't go away. It's still there, and it, and it's exactly in 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 uh, in direction. It's exactly the same as it was. It's just it's just not as intense, and it doesn't it doesn't control me as it did as it did before I transitioned. Uh, so yes, it, there was the need, there was definitely the need to transition and the hormone therapy helped the, uh, helped, you know, helped just quell that. I, uh, I've never, you know, I was, I was ha- at the time I was happy when I transitioned. I said it was four years later. I, I went willingly to the, to the operating theater. They make you walk in the UK they, because, uh, it's uh, it says money, you see, so, and ac- actually, <laughs> because you, you you're fit and healthy going into this operating theatre, so they don't come with a trolley to wheel you there. Uh, In the, the US, the second you walk into a hospital, you get morphine and uh, no, you lay no, no, down. No, they make you walk all the <laughs> okay. way to the, the the anesthetic room, the, all the way to the anesthetic room, and they make you walk because it it says, uh, you know, do you really want to do this? And you Aww. and they say, sit down here, sit down here, and he was he was there with the morphine, and he said. Are you sure you want to do this? I said yes. I wonder how many people have said no at that point because I've I've heard a couple of people say that. What are your thoughts now um, about that? You know, was there was there? Did you have other options or? I I really don't know, Stella. I I look back and think, did I really need to do this? Did I? Uh, but actually, the surgery the surgery gave me a lot of freedom. I've always been a bit contrary and I've never, I've never, I, I'm not the sort of person who can go with a program. No, I don't do that. And I was Obviously. always, <laughs> I was always a bit worried from, from 2012 to 2016, I was always a bit worried that I would deviate so far from the program that the gender clinic would say, no, you're not, you're, you're not taking this seriously, Debbie. So we're going to take the hormones away and you can basically carry on with life. That's what I worry. I don't think they would have done that. Whereas the moment I woke up from that surgery, you think, well, they can't touch me now. I can do what I, can do what I like now. Uh, so that, that was, that was actually liberating was that. But whether it was necessary, I, 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 I keep going back to it. It helped and it helped a lot, but was there a better way? We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. We're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for sponsoring us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. Now, back to the show. You know, I, I get really interested in whether or not having a name for what we're experiencing is a helpful 
starting point for people. And I find it really interesting that you never even heard of the way gender dysphoria or autogynephilia manifests in some male people. And I, I get curious about, had you stumble up, stumbled upon that information before, would it have been you know, something that shifts the trajectory of what you felt you needed to do or how you managed your feelings? Um, you know, hindsight is really ridiculous. We're, we're very bad at predicting what we would have done. So this is almost like a throwaway. But I'm just curious, do you think about that? Like, what if I had known there's this thing called autogynephilia? What if I had regarded it with more curiosity rather than dismissal or disgust? Like, how would I have dealt with all of this? I do wonder. Uh, but it goes back to that chair again. There, There is nothing I don't think would have stopped it. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, that I had a gender identity or I had gender dysphoria, whatever that was. It was, this was something I needed to do. It was compulsive. And it, it, and the need for transition, for social transition, hormone therapy, gender surgery was, it was, it was a compulsion that gripped me and it would have taken an awful lot to, uh, an awful lot to re- release me from that. And I, I think what you've just said is key. I wonder, like, is that where the public awareness needs to land, that we can feel compulsively towards our gender? And what we do with that, I don't know, but, like, it could deepen our understanding of of our feelings around gender, that some people seem to feel in a a very compulsive way about it. And when somebody's compulsed, it's... Nobody's nobody's stopping you. You know, it's 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 a very different place you kind of go into. Now you do say it helped, and it's I've heard you talk about, it and I talk about it as well. You know, we talk about gender dysphoria, but let's let's talk about gender euphoria, and also the pink mist, as you eloquently put it. Tell me what your thoughts are on this, because I think this isn't given half enough space. Yeah, we we talk a lot about gender dysphoria, but gender euphoria is a bigger problem, and it comes from the uh, the feelings that you can transition, and that gives a very gives a strong sense of euphoria. And the problem is not so much uh, it, it it's it's the low gender dysphoria is the coming down from that, uh, but it's it's the euphoria that takes you up there, the way you, where you then come down from. So uh, so yes, it was. The first time when I realised that I could transition, that was euphoric. Uh, th- then sorting out my timelines and my charts and things, that just fed into all aspects of my personality there that I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. Uh, going out, you know, uh, you know, trying to pass as a woman, that was, that was a strong sense of euphoria there. And, you know, I did, I told the gender clinic that it was next week and I did, you know, I went out next week and then I came down from it and coming down from that. So spending time presenting as a woman thinking, yes, I can do this. And then coming down from it was just, it was just horrid. So it's all, it's the coming downs the whole time. Uh, So it's the euphoria, which uh, is, I think, is the bigger problem. And it gives you a totally unrealistic, it puts you in a totally unrealistic position. You're on this real high, this, and people around you really have got, they couldn't care. They've got, they've got everything else to worry about. So suddenly you're on this, you're on this high, this euphoria, and nobody else cares apart from other trans people who are, who are, who are also going through it. So you, you then get a sense of community there with people you understand, and then you get a feedback from each other. And then, as I say, and then we then uh, and then the, there there is no stopping you at that point. And yes, the pink mist, as you talked about, that 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 that's a terminology from the uh, yes, I, that that came from the trans community. That the pink mist. Once the pink mist descends, you 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 know oh you you're lost without a trace. It's like a drug. I mean, you're you're obviously yeah. talking about something that sounds analogous to being in an altered state of mind, something that you are feeling powerfully, nobody else is aware of, only people who are also equally high get it. Um, And the coming down is like a crashing down that you just have to keep chasing that high. Yeah, it it is. The, the, uh, the, the, um, the release of, you know, hormones in the brain is just, you know, it's, it's huge. You know, it's, it's massive. 
And that's... Uh, Are you talking about but, synthetic hormones or just the high? No, of- no, no, no. What you, what you Brent, this was before I took, ever took oh, yeah, any synthetic hormones. Yeah, this is your hormones. natural high. This is natural. Yeah. Meaning this- when, when you're passing, you get a rush. Yeah. Is what you're saying because mm-hmm. you can do this, and yeah, and th- this is this is this has been something you really wanted to do for thirty, forty years, and now you're doing it. You're really here, yeah. You've only got you've only just gone and done it, haven't you? And 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 the uh, the chemicals that releases in the brain is is huge, and uh, and it creates uh, it creates demand for more. I'm thinking, uh, so there's this, you know, and I'm sure listeners will really relate that, you know, the person is on their gender euphoric pink mist high and you you can't even talk to somebody who's on that. They're like, get out of my way. I'm living my best life, loser. And the family and friends are just like, what is going on? And as you said before, you're going at a thousand miles per hour. Everybody else is just walking. Um, is there any reaching? Can is there any speaking across this massive gap between the two? There wasn't in my experience. Whether there could be or not, I don't know. I, I often will talk to parents about this and they'll say, you know, we we tried to warn so-and-so that in 15 years they might have a 3% elevated chance of something, something. And I'm like, good luck. I mean, that is going to impact that child 0% um, because the feelings are so powerful. And of course, I think the type of experience you're d- talking about here, Debbie, is probably very different from some of the ROGD girls, for example. But I think in some cases, people fail to understand how powerful the desire to pass and transition can be. Yeah, I think AGP males are very different to ROGD girls. And to try and conflate the two is, is just unhelpful. And people do, but uh, it's wrong. But in the same way, they're both compulsions. And they're both they're both driven by uh, the 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 they are they're both externally driven by society, uh, ROGD girls and also AGP males. It's because my experience was I transitioned when other others were doing it, and I wanted to do that too. And that there is an analogy with the ROGD girls. Mm-hmm. Can I can I read something you put in an essay, which is going to lead us into a deeper exploration of pink mist here? So you're talking about how you wanted to be a girl so desperately. And um, you knew you were also attracted to females, but your target of your sexuality was your own body. And you said in this essay, it was an impossible problem, but it had not had it not been for the Internet. I suspect the second half of my life would have been pretty much the same as the first. A family man, notable for things I had done in my career rather than things I did to my body. The crisis was precipitated by social media. When I learned that other people were transitioning and seemingly finding peace and contentment as a result, I needed to do it too. Five years later, the pink mist began to lift and I realized that transition is at best a palliative solution to a psychological distress. It can never be a resolution because we can never change sex. So had you transitioned under the illusion that you were literally, or at least good enough in terms of function, changing sex? And then at what point did this pink mist lift for you? What, what was the realization? Uh, there, was three, there was three things that all happened in the summer of 2016. I, first of all, the surgery, the surgery gave me freedom to explore. And I, I knew instinctively before the surgery, if I'd explored too much, I was at risk of being uh, my transition being stopped by others. So the surgery gave me freedom. I then, uh, I then came. The, the, our government was trying to bring in self ID in this country, and I thought I thought it was a bad idea because I realised that uh, I, I realised that. Uh, there was no gatekeeping anyway. There's, there's very little in the way of gatekeeping. Uh, but society thought there was. And the, the gatekeeping that society thought was going on gave us our credibility and our acceptance in society. Take that away and I, I thought there'd be big problems. And I was right. You know, so, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm quite proud of the fact that I wrote about that in 2016, all the problems that we're facing now, you know, I, I, I saw that coming, but I also came across, I had, a. it was, it was, it was looking at the, I started getting involved in a, in a political trans group because of the, uh, because of the legal changes here. 
and or the proposed legal changes. And it was another trans woman. And we, we met and I rem- we, we, we met for a pizza in Coventry in September 2016. And uh, she came and said, you know those turfs, Derby? I said, yeah. yeah. She said, I think they're right. <laughs> she said, well, they're not completely right, but I think they're 90% of the right. And, uh, and, and showed me and, uh, and said, here's a couple of videos to watch and let's come back and discuss them. And one was a philosopher, Rebecca Riley Cooper, uh, a, a one-hour talk, an evening talk on uh, gender identity and how it was a lot of bunk. And the other one was, uh, which, which I watched, and that gave me one side to it. So I was persuaded by the intellectual arguments. And the other one was Magdalene Burns' takedown of Alex Drummond, which is just such a... I, I do feel for Alex. I, I, you know, I have mutual friends with Alex, but you know, that video really just tore apart what was going on here. This is nonsense. And I remember watching those videos thinking... Uh, oh, and the, the other person I was putting to which was Miranda Yardley, who Stella knows... Uh, who has who's also been a, a huge influence on me? But I, I, I credit the three of them: Rebecca Riley Cooper, Magdalene Burns, and Miranda Yardley, as the influences on me. You know, one gave me the intellectual background that gender identity was bunk. Magdalene just said, "This is where it leads to. This is the nonsense and the impact on women that I couldn't ignore." And then it was Miranda, very, very patiently, uh, just said, "Well, have you come across autogynophilia, Debbie?" And I said, you know, to kind of fill you know, it's, uh, you know, and, uh, and Miranda was really patient, actually. And I was in a position to listen and increasingly you think, yes, this is me. But it's only when you actually deconstruct it and separate away from the outworkings of autogynophilia from the actual base itself. Just because you're an autogynophile doesn't mean to say you, you've got to be a, a porn crazed, uh, you know, loon you know that's not necessary and that i think is where in some people's minds the two are actually conflated and that i that i regret is there a way for the the autogynophile to operate in the world without asking other people to buy into the narrative that they're a woman well i think i i i I, People just think I'm odd now in real life. You went through all this, Debbie, and you're only telling us you're not a woman. And I said, well, I'm, I'm me. But, uh, you know, uh, friends and, you know, but people put, people, people caught with me. But I think the thing is that they look at me and think, well, you know, what's going on here? And I think, what's going on here? But. Uh, is it asking a lot of the world? It's asking a huge amount to say, to tell the world, ask the world to accept that there's a group of men who like to present in the same way as women, but are men. And they're doing it because they're sexually attracted to themselves. Uh, this, that, that's a hard sell. Much easier to say these poor, these poor souls had the misfortune to have a, a female brain in a male body and such nasty things have happened to them. It's much, that's a much easier story to sell. So you talked about these kind of three important influences, Rebecca Riley Cooper, Magdalene Burns, and Miranda Yardley. And you said this is part of what lifted the pink mist. So after you started to explore these concepts, are you saying that you started to have a diminished sense of gender euphoria when you were able to pass or be experienced as a woman in public? Like what changed? What was the lifting of the pink mist? I think the gender, the, the 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 ups and downs of the gender euphoria that that went with early on in hormone therapy back okay. in back in twenty thirteen. Uh, what went with this was this was this thing I had to cling on to that I was some sort of woman. Uh, I couldn't explain to myself that how how on earth could I be a woman because I knew I had a male body, uh, but I just you know I, I I was some sort of woman. But I I relied on the fact that uh, other people had to believe it. Otherwise, the the illusion fell apart. And what's more is I had to believe that other people believed it. And and I really wasn't. And that was always the dissatisfaction there. And the the liberation, the feeling of freedom you get when you realise you don't have to believe any of this nonsense. Uh, we're all human beings, and 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 we should be able to uh, we should be able to present ourselves in the uh, in the way that we want. Surely, uh, and. To, uh, and what what helped me immeasurably was when I was detached from other people's feelings and reactions. If if people now say, uh, 
we really think you are a woman, Debbie. I can say, well, I don't think I am, but you believe it if, you, if, if it helps, believe it. Or if somebody says you're a man hit, and I say, well, yeah, so, so what? You know, what's wrong with being a man? And other people's reactions, other people's feelings no longer have any hold over me. And that was, that was what the uh, liberal... Think, think what they're like. Why should I... As long as they don't... Uh, you know, as, as long as I feel safe and I don't feel intimidated and I don't feel harassed, why should why should it bother me what other people think? But uh, that 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 was freedom that didn't that transition didn't give. The way I'm hearing you is that when you were compulsively intent upon on transitioning, you weren't free to hear anything, and then when you transitioned, you were almost free to start looking at things. Is that right? Yeah, and it was it was it was a surgery. Uh, oh, There's always before then a feeling that if you start looking at this too deep and you start coming up with different ideas, things might get taken away from you. And I was I didn't want anything to be taken away from me. So it was a feeling of denial. It's like don't get take yeah. my solution away from me. Give me my solution. Whereas once you've had that surgery, uh, there's bits that go. In the incinerator that can't be uh, that can't be stuck back on, if you sort of mean they can't go rummage around the bin and find find the, you know so they can't do that and and what's done is done. It's a one it's a one way process. Uh, Debbie, I've been really trying to think about when you look at the history of transgender medicine in general. I feel like there's never really been a a way to encourage people to transition from a very conscious place. I think part of what your therapist did well is she gave you the opportunity to slow down and be really conscious about the choices you were making. And one of the things I I pick up on when I talk to people who have transitioned and are doing generally pretty well is that they're comfortable with the fact that they do exist in this kind of third space. And I think personality-wise, that means the individual has to be willing to be not really a conformist. And I think when people are seeking transition because they want to perfectly conform to one box or another, that's when the serious disappointment and perhaps even suicidality sits in because we know that for some individuals who transition decades later, there's really serious complications. So, um, You know, Stella asked this really great question about like, how can somebody with this autogynephilic experience be more conscientious, more mindful? How can they figure out how to help themselves in a way that doesn't force or impose their beliefs on everyone else? And I think part of what you said is not being so subject to what other people think of you, like having this independence of mind. Do you think that that's something you worked on explicitly? Do you think that's just part of your character traits? And like, how can we foster that in individuals who are maybe having a similar experience? The problem is at the, at the point of transition, when somebody thinks they're going to transition, uh, it's very difficult. They're, they're not in a rational position. I wasn't in a rational position. And I've always prided myself as being the most rational, scientific, logical thinker around. You know, I, uh, when, I was, when I was growing up, if I couldn't be a woman, I wanted to be Mr. Spock. You know, I wanted to be, the, uh, I, I wanted to be uh, rational in that way. And even I was totally overcome by this to the point when I was... I was operating irrationally. I couldn't be reasoned with. I couldn't reason with myself. Uh, I was just operating on Im- chasing emotional highs the whole time. So to say, is there something we can do to help these people? Uh, it's difficult. But I come back to the thing that triggered it was the availability of treatment. And this, this is the, uh, this, I've been accused of wanting to pull up the ladder behind me. Uh, you, you, you've got everything you want. And there's people who are struggling to transition now. And in the UK, the wait lists are now years. You know, treatment which I, I accessed within four months is now, is now years wait lists. And people then say, well, you're pulling up the ladder behind you, Debbie, and we want this as well. And what I think is, yes, I did, I did, I did climb that ladder, and it didn't, it didn't lead to, uh, it didn't lead to satisfaction, and it did lead to disappointment because you can never, you can never, you can never find what you're actually looking for. You, you can't change sex, 
so it's the availability of the treatment, and the more treatment you make available, the more physical treatment you make available, the more demand you're going to uh, you, you, you're going to create for it. Uh, you know, I can't talk, you know. ROGD girls, I don't talk, you know, it's not my experience at all, but among AGP males, it could be, you know, it could be 3% of us. It could be 3% of men are AGP to some extent. Uh, it's not so, it's really difficult to actually get men to admit it. Uh, but Ken Zucker did some work and I think he came up with 2.7%. Uh, and, you know, there's, that seems a reasonable figure, but let, let's, let's round it down to 2%. You know, that's uh, there's thirty thousand males in the UK. Two percent, two percent of them is is six well, six hundred thousand people. That's a lot of people, and the, well, uh, the UK gender clinics can cope with, you know, hundreds. You know, not hundreds of thousands. And th- this this treatment will always be there, and it looks like it's going to be more and more accessible. Do you think that will impact the numbers of of AGP? Well, it, it's it's accessible, but does it bring any? Uh, does it bring resolution satisfaction? I look at other people who have transitioned, and they don't seem to be very happy about it. They just seem to keep moaning. Uh, everybody's out to get them. You know, the uh, the horrible women won't accept them. You know, the the you know, life life just seems miserable. And I'm thinking, well. I, I don't I don't share that. I quite enjoy life, you know. And as I say to people, I say, you've got this philosophy that you're a woman and everybody's got to believe that you're miserable. I've got this philosophy that says I'm not a woman and take me as you find me and I'm, I'm quite happy in life. You know, even, you know, we, we can debate the, which philosophy is right, but it's quite clear to me which which philosophy brings satisfaction and improves that's lives. That's right. So why are you faffing around with this? That, that, so that's, that's my uh, response. I, yeah. I hear you, but I can't quite understand how you can say that you're AGP and so coolly say and I'm a man and because I, I from my understanding of it 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 kind of hankers after seeing yourself as a woman well yeah I've been there I've done it you know uh that that you know I've 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 been there I've done that and it didn't it didn't help uh I can cope because you know my 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 hormones are in a in a place where it's easy to manage my sexual sexuality. Does it do reduce much, much uh, when you take estrogen, and let's say you've got this erotic obsession? Does it reduce? Does that erotic obsession reduce substantially? Because everybody asks this. I don't think it's estrogen. It's the it's the blocker of testosterone. Because the two hormones, you know, women will have estrogen of about on the same scale. We talk about pico as opposed to nano. Yeah, on the same scale. Yeah, my hormones, according to the endocrinologist that uh, that recommended it, should be between four hundred and the estrogen should be between four hundred and six hundred. Now, on that scale. Men have oestrogen between 50 and 100. You know, men do. And postmenopausal women will have oestrogen that, in that level, you know, of 50 to 100. Now, when I, before I transitioned, my, my testosterone was 35,000 on that scale. So it's not, it's not so much the oestrogen that went up from, say, 50 to 500. It was the testosterone that came down from 35,000 down to, uh, about 500. And, and when I have my bloods done now, my testosterone level and my estrogen levels, are, they're not, you know, they're, they're similar, but they are, they are in women. It's testosterone that uh, fuels sexual, sex, sexual drive in both men and women. It's just that men have, it's just men have so much more of it. Should women, uh, should trans women go through some sort of synthetic menopause? Mm, I'm thinking, yeah. Uh, it's it, it the treat the treatment plan is you stay on you you stay on estrogen in this in this in in this Goldilocks zone for forever. Now already, you know my 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 estrogen levels sit between five when I've had my blood stone. I don't get them done very often these days. When I get them blood stone, it, it poodles along on a straight line. Meanwhile, Stephanie's are doing this because she's a woman, you see, up and down. And uh, so I, I've, and then, and then coming into uh, coming into menopause because I'm, I'm in my early fifties now. 
the expectation is I can just carry on like this forever and a day. And I'm not sure that's, that's fair on the women around me. So perhaps we should. Uh, but the, from, from myself is, is that do you, you know, menopause comes with issues. Uh, if I come off my hormones, I've got the same risk of osteoporosis as women do because I don't have any, I don't, I'm not producing the testosterone. So, but should I, you know, should I come down from the dose I'm on now down to some, some lower level? I don't know. I've talked to, I talked to my GP about it and she was, uh, she was, she was, she, she, I've never thought about this. Uh, so, uh, I had a conversation with her about it, but w- there is, there is, you know, th- there, there is no experts on this. You know, I'm talking to my GP and she got onto the endocrinologist at the gender clinic and basically said, you know, you know nobody's really done much studying this. It's all very interesting, isn't it? And <laughs> it's quite frightening, really. You go into this and nobody's got a clue what's going on. Uh, but this seems to work. You know, I, I'm quite happy. I'm stable. So why change it? But... Yeah, when Steph- when Stephanie's hormones come down, is it really fair for me to carry on with my, uh, you know, my hormones just in the Goldilocks zone? I don't know. Uh, so it's something where I need to think about. I, I want to make a comment about something you you talked about a little bit earlier. You know, Stella was asking. You know, I thought that AGP was this like insatiable drive to be seen as a woman, and yet Debbie, you're really comfortable saying, you know, I'm not really a woman. See me as you will. And it made me think about how, you know, when we study, let's say, female sexuality, we tend to know that a 13-year-old female is going to have a different sexuality experience than a 17-year-old, than a 20-year-old, than a woman who's been married to her husband for 40 years, right? Like this develops over a lifespan. And, you know, you talked about this compulsion to transition and to get what you wanted and you got what you wanted and then the desire kind of waned a little bit and that that feels to me like we maybe the next frontier for trans medicine is to understand these things across a developmental span because of course you pining for transition in your 40s when you first discovered it was possible it makes sense that it's going to look a little bit different once you've gone down that road and you got what you wanted and the high kind of diminishes, you know, the novelty of it kind of comes and goes. So um, where do you see yourself kind of going now that you've achieved something you wanted? You've, of course, become disillusioned with the whole trans ideology project, and now you're in a different phase of your life. Like, where do you think this is leading for you? Well, I was able to change my body and I like, I like it as it is. You know, I, I like my body. Uh, people's, people said, why, do, why don't you detransition, Debbie? Because you, you, you've got, you, you don't believe it anymore. I said, no, I've ne- I don't believe it. So why don't you detransition? And I said, well, what, do, what would detransition mean for me? What, what would it mean for me to detransition? Uh, you know, I can't, I, I can't, you know, I can't reverse through gender surgery. I can't do that. Uh, I've no, I've no, no wish to have a mastectomy, you know, no wish for that. So my body is my body. I'm happy with it. I like it. But how I interact with the world, as long as I can keep my body, then it does, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I got, I got missed. I was, I was, I, I, it was a phone call with an estate. We're buying a house. At the, we're buying houses at the moment. So I was talking to a estate agent and he, he served me on the phone. And 10 years ago, that would have been debilitating. Whereas now I thought, oh, I'm going to go with this. Uh, men carry more authority, don't they? So uh, I carried on with the sir and I, I, I lowered my voice even further. And we're, and we're there holding these negotiations on the phone. And I'm thinking, this, this, is, not, this is not an issue. Uh, if I take a new job, it is a, it is a pain being, uh, you know, explained to everybody that, yes, I'm Debbie, I'm transsexual, this, that and the other. You know, if I take a new job, could I cut my hair or tie it back and... and be David again. I'm beyond, you know, I'm beyond, uh, that doesn't bother me at all. As long as, as as long as you don't wheel me in to have my body changed. Yeah. Can I ask, does it impact, because I know you're a teacher, do you think it impacts your students? I can't tell. You know, this, this is the thing you see. Uh, My students tend to, uh, my students tend to take me for female instinctively. And, you know, Few, you know, I, I, I don't get, I don't get third very often. I do sometimes, even bottom, but most, most female teachers do at times. 
And uh, so, but it's the impact it has on children struggling with gender themselves I do worry about because suddenly there's somebody here who seems to be making this work and it's great. And if you're a 15-year-old of either sex struggling with gender, struggling with gender dysphoria, then suddenly to have a teacher here who's worked it all through, I do worry that I'm a, I'm a role model there that I perhaps don't want to be because it's not, it, it isn't great. You know, you can't be the opposite sex. And, uh, you know, so that, 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 does, that, that does concern me in that way. But in most of my job, I do the same job as male teachers do, female teachers do. I teach science and it doesn't really matter the sex of the teacher. When it comes to general duties, for example, some duty rounds involve checking the toilets, some duty rounds don't. I just make sure, you know, it would be inappropriate for me to check you know, check the toilets via the sex, totally inappropriate. So I do a, I do a duty, general duty, which doesn't involve toilets. Uh, and you could, you, know, so, get, you could raise awareness, perhaps, among students about, you know, the complex and difficult challenges that people who decide to transition do transition, do, do for... Yeah, yeah I, maybe. Could, I could I do. Know. I've always tried to keep, I've always tried to keep it separate. So when we've had children who have asked questions in school... And and some have come to me. Uh, I've always referred them on to the pastoral team straight away to say that uh, you know I'm quite happy to listen to you and uh, you know and the rules are the same. And, and if child discloses anything to you, the rules are always the same. You assure them that you're going to listen to them, but you may have to share it with other people within the safeguarding policy because we care about you, and want the best for you. So I'm not going to keep any secrets. And children have disclosed to me, and at the end of it, I'm saying, well, look, you know. I can, uh, you know, I, I can uh, go and talk to the head, the head teacher and say what's, you know, and say, this is what's happened. Can you have a talk to so-and-so about this? And I, I've done that, but I then stay well away from it from there on in. You know, it's, it's not appropriate for me. I'm a science teacher and not a, not a counsellor and not a... Uh, and not a therapist, so I, 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 stay, I stay well away from it. And I wouldn't want to be in a position where you know, where I can be exerting an influence there. It's, 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 that's not my role. Well, that sounds like a very refreshing and responsible perspective, not just because you have transitioned, but in general, I think some teachers have overstepped the boundaries of what is within their professional duties and not. So it's, it's interesting and nice to hear that. Well, Debbie, we're so grateful to have you on. It's been so interesting to hear more about these issues from your perspective. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's really nice to talk to you both. Yeah. Can I just say thank you in general? Like you're so brave and you have so much forbearance and you're just so honest and decent and you have so much integrity yeah. and you're really, you're really, you keep going. And I think an awful lot of people pull at you. It feels like they peck at you and they're at you and you just keep going because you think you're doing the mm -hmm. right thing. And I just, I really, really, really appreciate that. Yeah, me too. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and our listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media. And if you'd like to make a financial contribution, you can donate on our website. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services mm -hmm.